Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the JEDCast. I'm your host, Jed Liano, Vice Mayor Claremont, and the chair of the Claremont Lincoln University MPA Advisory Board. With me today, as always, is my co-host, Dr. Audrey Jordan. Audrey, how are you today? Hey, Jed. Great to be here with you again today. I'm really excited about talking with our guest, Devin Hartman, and hearing more about Chirp Solar Works and the fabulous work that he's doing. You know, I'm really excited about this. It's unbelievable to me that we are talking to the guy who created the first ever nonprofit solar panel factory in the United States. And that not only is this the first solar panel factory of its kind, but also the fact that this organization is specifically targeting the creation and manufacturing of solar panels for communities of color that are disadvantaged, that are hardest hit by climate change. Wow, exactly, Jed. That's what's got me intrigued. I mean, CHIRP, Community Home Energy Retrofit Project Solar Works, and focused on the most marginalized communities. I've, I'm so eager to ask him questions around how you're engaging those people and creating informed consumers and, and ensuring that they get the benefits of this effort, not just in terms of the solar panels, but also in terms of economic development. You know, there's so many things about the new technologies that are coming out now. And one of the things though we have to ask is, are all boats rising with the tide? So when we develop brand new technologies, do all households, do all communities, do all income levels benefit from the rewards of those technologies? And, and I don't know that what the answer to that is, but I think our friend Devin's going to help us navigate this issue. So for all of you listening at home, in the train, on the car, on your way to work, glad to have you with us. And coming up soon, the CEO of Chirp SolarWorks, Devin Hartman. Glad to have you with us on the JetCast. All right, everybody, welcome back to the JEDCast. We're really excited now to have with us the CEO of Chirp Solar Works, Devin Hartman. Devin, how are you today? Great, Jed. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to have you join us, and we're so excited. You know, this show has gone, had so many fantastic guests and so many great topics, uh, but we have a real special one in talking with you. Tell me about Chirp Solar Works, how you get started, and what you're working on right now. Well, how we got started is uh, after I retired from Hartman Baldwin Design Build, my architecture and construction company in 2010, I created with a couple other people in Claremont, Freeman Allen and Chris Veers, a nonprofit organization called Chirp. And back in 2010, we were focused on building retrofits because I had decided that I wanted to spend the rest of my career, the rest of the functioning years that I had left to be focused on global warming, mitigating global warming in the building sector. And so this was back when the Energy Upgrade California program was burgeoning throughout California. And we were focused on building retrofits around energy efficiency in the building sector to mitigate massive GHG and to also focus on quality of life and energy efficiency in the building sector. So that's when Chirp got started. But five years later, then we opened up a new project called Chirp SolarWorks uh, after I met a guy named Kent Kernahan, who is a prolific inventor and figured out a way to solve a fundamental problem in solar panels. 
and decided that this would be a very exciting venture and it would create a capstone project to our suite of projects created by CHIRP to address global warming in the building sector. So now we have three major goals, educate the public, retrofit buildings for energy efficiency, and then to supply renewable energy and solar storage to take entire cities to net zero energy. That's awesome, Devin. Let's get right into the solar renewable energy production and storage. So I know that right now you're working on locally grown powers solar network. Tell me about that project. Over the last year and a half, based on funding from the state of California out of the 2000, the 2019 budget allotment, we have created the first nonprofit solar panel assembly factory in the world. And we're getting ready to now replicate that prototype across California and then the country. So at Chirp Solar Works, we are solar factory builders. And our goal is to build solar factories for other nonprofit organizations throughout California and the country so that they can own their own solar factory in their own community. And we focus on disadvantaged communities, such as in California, we're focused on Cal Green, highly negatively impacted communities on the Cal Green. And then the ultimate goal is to stitch all of these factories together into the locally grown power solar factory network nationwide. Devin, so you, this is the first of its kind solar panel factory that's a nonprofit. For those of us who aren't in the energy production space, it seems to me, I can't believe that this is the first time that production of something that's so necessary for the survival of our planet is, is actually being conducted by a nonprofit. Walk me through this space. Who's producing solar panels right now? Well, 94% of all panels installed in the United States as of the last data collection in 2019, reported on in just last year, 94% of all panels installed in the United States are imported, largely from Malaysia, China, Vietnam, other places in the world. And we have allowed our solar panel manufacturing industry to be gutted. So the interesting thing about our deployment model is, as you have noted, that it's nonprofit. Normally speaking, you will not see a nonprofit organization have the opportunity to deploy world-class cutting-edge intellectual property or patents, because most of those inventors who invent those patents or that intellectual property generally 99% of the time, they will go to venture capital for funding and the venture capital investors will go overseas to monetize that investment with cheap labor. So just so that I get this right, Devin, basically when we say 94%, 94% of the renewables that are being produced are being outsourced to foreign production sites. And you know, you don't need to yes. be a PhD in economics to understand that the reason these companies travel to these far distances and then import these products is because of profit margins. And that's right. Um, Cheap labor. And, and so tell me how, if we're going to turn that model around and yep. if locally grown power is going to take what's 94% of the time done 
overseas in Southeast Asia. If we're going to move that to domestic markets by a nonprofit, tell me how that works. Yep. First of all, you have to have a committed team. You have to have everybody in the vertical who is launching the product to be committed to the fact that we have now proven that trickle down does not work and that letting all of our manufacturing sectors leave the country is not a good idea for our local economies in our local cities. One of the reasons I believe that we have 250,000 people in the state of California alone living under bridges is because we thought that globalization and nationalization of all of our industries and sending them overseas would be a good idea. And it's turned out that it's not such a good idea because even if you bring back an incredibly cheap product from overseas, if you don't have people working here, nobody can still afford it no matter how cheap it is. So we've decided to reorganize this entire deployment model around focusing on disadvantaged communities and economic revitalization from the ground up. So we can take a world-class patented idea, marry it to a nonprofit business model, and deploy it in locally owned and locally deployed mini micro factories around the country so that we can take the jobs to the communities that need the jobs. So people can actually walk or bicycle to work rather than working in some giant behemoth factory, either overseas or centralized, even in the United States. We envision a massively parallel, decentralized, distributed manufacturing model. Devin, that's fascinating. And we, you know, going back to questions, you mentioned that 94% of the solar panel production is produced overseas and then imported. And then you also mentioned the California virus screen and how climate change impacts certain communities differently. I'm going to throw it to my co-host, Dr. Audrey Jordan from the CLU faculty to take us down this path, talking about communities of color and environmental equity. Audrey, take it away. Yeah. Wow, Devin, you just blow my mind here. And I, I'll say at the outset, I don't know much about this field, but as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, wow, the Callum viral screen helps identify these marginalized communities where you might find the labor that you could be attracted to producing these panels. And not only that, you're in communities where the climate change impact is the most severe. Tell me if I'm understanding that correctly about how this is like ripe for the kind of project that you're pushing. We all know as a culture now yeah. that, we, that we cannot effectively address the global warming and climate change issues in our country without addressing equity and justice issues. These two things go hand in hand because like we say, the economics of the last 40, 50 years has only disadvantaged more and more of our local communities and populations throughout the country. We have people in West Virginia that are struggling to retool from fossil fuels and coal. We have people in the Rust Belt in Ohio. We have Detroit that was decimated due to all of the industries being taken overseas. We have, like you say, the Cal Virus screen. In California, we have a, a wonderful 
California-centric data mining organization through the state that quantified by census tract the negative impacts of the environment on that particular census tract. And you can climb right on that interactive map. You can go in and you can see the highest ranked negatively environmentally impacted communities in our state. And our state is also committed through a number of legislative actions and implemented through cap and trade to focus on diverting monies to these legally defined now disadvantaged communities through the Cal Virus screen. And also there's an overlay map for low income. So a huge percentage of all cap and trade dollars in the state of California are legislated to go to disadvantaged communities and then also those communities that are low income. So the beautiful thing that we're doing in Pomona is that we have formed a joint strategic partnership between the city of Claremont and the city of Pomona to address the climate and the equity and justice issues in Pomona because Pomona is ranked one of the highest negatively ranked communities in our state. So we believe that it's important to demonstrate regional collaboration between cities when we're addressing these outsized problems such as climate change and equity and justice and global warming. Wow. You know, we had a recent podcast guest, Denise Diaz from Southgate, who told us that if you live in the 90280 zip code, your life expectancy is 10 years shorter, largely because of the kind of environmental challenges you just talked about. Yes. Yes. And and there are several of those all over the state of California. So as we have expanded, quote unquote, economically, especially based on the fossil fuel industry, all of the most harmful aspects of that fossil fuel based economic expansion has been at the expense of communities who could not stand up for themselves. So we have all the refineries and the peaker plants and the dumping grounds, the recycling industry, the transportation routes, all of those are along disadvantaged community corridors. So this Envirus screen is golden to help identify these places with these, let's just call them inequities. It seems like what you're describing is amazing. You said earlier, we all know. Well, let's leave aside the people who don't want to know and for their own sinister purposes don't want the rest of us to know. I'm wondering about the challenges to help folks in these marginalized communities know these kinds of facts. I mean, they live it, but do they know about the funding that's directed to their communities? Do they know about opportunities to engage? And I'm thinking with a program like yours, not only to be engaged with a project that will help clean up some of the mess, uh, but provide job opportunities for people. Absolutely. And many of these people have an intrinsic understanding of the fact that they can't get good fresh food or they do live in environmentally compromised areas, but they have no agency over changing that. And so that's why we and many other people, when I say we know, uh, we can state that now 
categorically because the Biden administration and the U.S. Department of Energy, meaning Jennifer Granholm and her department and the entire administration, understand the connection between equity and justice and global warming. This, this is now baked into our national agenda. Biden has a, an equity and justice initiative. They have committed to spending 40% of all dollars spent on the environment in this country to be focused on equity and justice issues first. And they are deadly serious about executing on that goal. And also they have the budget director going through and scrubbing every line item in the federal budget for its overlap with environmental issues. So we're talking lots and lots of money that will be funneled to these issues. We also have Kamala Harris, of course, seated now in Washington, and she's completely familiar with, and the administration is familiar with Cal Screen and other quantification methodologies like that across the country. And they're taking all of that into consideration in their plans. It's a very exciting moment yeah. right now. Yeah. So I'm just wondering, and then Jed, I promise I'll kick it back to you. I'm so excited. This conversation <laughs> is amazing. Keep it rolling, Audrey. I'm excited about the fact that this is such a, a rich opportunity for these communities to be cutting edge on factories that produce these solar panels and the immediate uh, effects that'll have in their communities. I'm wondering though, given that I've done some community organizing and engagement work myself about what are you all thinking about given your role is to build the factories, the other partners who are engaging with the residents, creating informed consumers, reaching out to potential nonprofits who may be nonprofits of color or or connected to communities of color to be involved in this project? Yes, we learned almost 12 years ago now when we started CHIRP that community engagement was actually the foundation of the entire edifice, that we, we will not uh, tackle global warming issues or workforce development issues or economic expansion issues if we do not engage the entire community and get them excited about what's possible. There's so many things that are possible, especially when we get together at not only at kind of the visualization level, but also at the legislation level, because we can rally together and we have a, a, a larger voice. So we have over 60 organizations that are strategic partners with us and supporters on a number of levels. We've spent a good 10 years developing relationships up and down the state and now across the country in terms of grassroots support for what we're doing and rallying people not only for donations, but also for intellectual capital. Uh, we have dozens of people on our advisory board with all kinds of expertise from all sectors, from academics to you know, engineering, to physics, to legislation, to faith-based communities, to you know, local political leadership, to just simply hundreds and hundreds of homeowners who are interested in seeing the quality of life, their quality of life improve in their communities. So it's super important. We're super happy with our connections with um, Claremont and Pomona. 
both of the political uh, scene there and also the dozens and dozens of organizations that have been supporting us all along. Devin, I want to get right into the business model. Okay, let's get right into locally grown power, creating a product through a local nonprofit using cutting edge technology. When you think of going to get solar, right? If you just think, I'm a homeowner, I don't like paying my electric bill, I'd like to save on it and do something good for the planet, and I'd like to invest in solar. There's a lot of vendors out there, right? So you go out and you can talk to a number of of vendors. Tell me how locally grown power as a nonprofit, intending to invest in the communities that are most pointedly directed and highlighted on the Enviro screen, how do they compete with the high margin imported model that is produced in Southeast Asia? Perfect question. Thank you very much for that. The only way to compete with China, and I'm using that, you know, to represent all foreign panels, but particularly in China that's controlled by a central committee and they can set the price wherever they want, is a nonprofit business model. Because in a nonprofit world, it's actually the nonprofit world in the United States is actually an extraordinarily powerful model. I didn't really understand that while I was running a for-profit business before. I always kind of thought maybe nonprofits are a little bit of a joke. I didn't really get how that was supposed to work. But in point in fact, a nonprofit organization at the local level is actually in strategic partnership with the federal government to incentivize and work toward the execution of local initiatives. The federal government understands that they are not suited to reach down into a local municipality and direct traffic, but a local nonprofit can leverage federal dollars through tax relief and tax-exempt donations to help focus attention on needs that local communities have self-identified. So it's an extraordinary partnership, and it allows for a number of benefits on the nonprofit side that a for-profit company cannot avail themselves of. So for example, our factory in Pomona was started with a $2.1 million check from the state of California to help us secure the location and purchase all of the equipment. So our capital expenditures to stand up this factory are exactly zero. So when we go to sell solar panels, we don't have a massive CapEx to amortize back into every single solar panel that we sell. We also have a number of organizations that have stepped up, for example, Pomona College and Harvey Mudd College. Harvey Mudd College, President Maria Klawe over at Harvey Mudd got excited about what we're doing and gave us two pro bono clinic projects working with the physicists and electrical engineers at Harvey Mudd College to test our product for free. It was a $110,000 consulting value that they gave us working with five or six students over two years and a number of professors to help us vet our technology. We also have the opportunity to take donated materials and donated equipment. We've been given massive 
pieces of machinery for free because it was better for the company to give it to us and take the tax benefits than to sell it for pennies on the dollar. So there's a wonderful world to be explored and leveraged on the nonprofit side that actually helps us reduce our cost to be competitive with China. Um, the other thing that I, I would not have ventured into this business with is the, uh, the patents that we are going to be deploying. These are, in fact, game-changing patents. They're, they're cutting-edge, world-class technology. Uh, these patents coming out of our humble nonprofit factory in Pomona, California, will be the first intelligent solar panels in the world. And they will be far more efficient, produce more energy, and degrade far less than any other panel on the marketplace in the world. So we have two unfair advantages, I think, coming to market. One is our business model that, that allows us to compete with Asia. And the second is that we have world-class technology that people will want, you can imagine, local and regional installers wanting the best technology, but also made right here in the United States in their region that can be supported and warranted in their region rather than have to try and claw that back from Asia. Devin, I know that as a lawyer, I, I really like to claim credit for all of my victories when in fact, sometimes they're, they're not the, the product of my work at all, that I was just in the right place at the right time to win an argument. How did you come upon a groundbreaking technology that solves one of the technological problems of solar panels and marry that with the local nonprofit model focused on communities that are disadvantaged in communities? Yeah, well, you know, like you, I think basically right time, right place, maybe being aware uh, when angels drop into our presence and being able to spot that and have the courage partner up. And uh, that happened with me in this particular case with the inventor of the technology, uh, a man named Kent Kernahan, that would be fun for you to interview at some point as well. But he woke up one day in 2010 at the bottom of the last recession and realized that all of his 55 patents to date at that point were being monetized overseas and that he was partly and in large part responsible for the gutting of American jobs while his technology was being exported. And so he resolved at that point to do something about that and to never let another one of his inventions get out of his control and be taken overseas. And so he decided to sit down and think about what would be the best deployment model in the United States to protect the patent and to protect our job and our economic base. And so uh, we've been working together now seven years and the result of our collaboration will be uh, the locally grown power solar factory network of locally owned by nonprofit organizations throughout the country in disadvantaged communities to be able to make world-class solar panels and cover their cities with those panels made by their own neighbors. So I've been very fortunate in my life. I've met a number of uh, wonderful people 
My last partnership at Hartman Baldwin was a joy for 35 years, and I have found a lot of satisfaction, a lot of inspiration, and real executional possibilities in partnering with lots of good people. And that's what we're doing here. Devin, that's an outstanding, outstanding connection that I'm still in the place where I'm supposed to be asking questions, but I just have to drop this in. It is nothing short of remarkable that groundbreaking technology that any investor would pay top dollar for. Venture capitalists would go out and fish and find it and then try to flip it over somewhere where they can turn the highest margin. The fact that we're marrying that with local nonprofits so that people can work local jobs and then create renewable energy for their hometown, that to me is unbelievable. So I'm sorry, I'm still supposed to be asking questions. I just had to drop that in there. Well, that, you know, that, that is, you know, the commitment to doing this has been deep and intense for the last now 12 years because Kent came up with this invention, this particular invention in 2011 and has had many offers to purchase it. But his dream has been to create a fundamental change in the way that we deploy world-class technology in the country. He sees the inventor class in general as having an outsized lever to pull in clawing back industry from around the world to advantage our own communities. So it has been a deep kind of philosophical commitment to this ideal and this vision for now going on about 10 years. And it has not been easy. It's been, you know, tempting to go right. an easier route, but yep. the, the vision of this coming to fruition has, has really been kind of the guiding light here. And it, I'm very, very, very proud of the whole team and especially Kent and his team for creating and holding on to this vision. You know, Devin, we're spending a lot of time here though, talking about the angels. Let's talk about the devils too. You got a lot of allies and you got a lot of good people behind you. This has to be threatening to some folks. This has to be threatening to the protectors of the status quo. This has to be threatening to people who see renewable energy as a bottom line question. This will tear into my margins. My spreadsheet's going to look different. Talk to me about the opposition. Who's out there trying to oppose this or trying to get in the way? This disrupts the business model of business as usual for solar panels, new renewable energy. What's that discourse or battle been like? I think that at the highest levels in the fossil fuel industry, I think management understands that their pivot point has come. And some of the people that I've talked to at executive levels at some of the, of the higher corporations have told me that certain companies, for example, are are making no new investments in fossil fuels, but they are going to extract every possible profit dollar they can out of already sunk costs. So we are at a tipping point. Things are beginning to shift, but yes, we are seeing, especially, well, let's just say even in California, where we have huge climate change and GHG mitigation aspirational goals, we still see a support of the utilities in there trying to stop or at least hurt the advance of solar. So we know that this is a, a giant ship that needs to be turned carefully and slowly. 
but even in most of these organizations, there are hundreds of people who believe in what we all believe. We know it's inevitable. And so we're finding, we're finding allies, even, even in the utilities that are helping us kind of think through how can we create things like community solar projects that feed actually into the grid and that help with local distribution because we need local distribution. Governor Newsom has been calling for it. We know that in terms of resiliency, the necessity for resiliency at the community level, we need local generation. The utilities need local and distributed generation throughout the grid so they don't have to create new peaker plants at the end of their distribution lines because more and more communities like Oxnard just refuse to have them put there. So it's a new landscape. It is the wild, wild west. But so far, you know, we're working on an idea. I'm hoping that next year when we have 10 more factories running around the country, that we might surface more opposition than we have right now. But right now we're flying right along with uh, existing uh, deployment legislation. We are operating within NTL and state guidelines for the deployment of, of energy. And we're right in partnership with the whole movement in California around community choice aggregation cities as they clamor to be able to have the agency to buy and sell their own energy and to choose from whom they purchase that energy. And so what better place would be to stand up their own factory and purchase energy from their own city? Devin, this has been a real joy just walking through the steps of where we are and how we got here. But I'm going to ask you for this last question. How do we take the next step? So this has been a real lift, clearly. You've walked us through the technology, the business model, the local impact, the target communities, whom you believe the target consumers are, who's the workforce. But to go and reach critical mass, to make this the prevalent and preferred model through which renewable energies are accessible to all communities. What's the next step that needs to happen? Okay, I think we're right on the edge of accomplishing that. We have been spending now the last four months engaging with all of our local and national elected officials. So Assemblyman Chris Holden, for example, Assemblyman Freddie Rodriguez, Senator Connie Leva, Supervisor Hilda Solis, Senator Norma Torres, we are in contact with all of them and all of them have been uh, enthusiastic in their support of what we're doing because right now it's the time to make sure that we are in conversation with the people who will ultimately decide where these trillions of dollars are going to get spent in this next reconstruction phase coming out of the federal government, but also state of California right now is in a huge budget surplus. And so we need to figure out how best to spend stimulus dollars to reinvigorate local communities around all of these issues that we've been talking about. So right now we have conversations with all of those offices uh, that I just mentioned. And so let me cast a quick vision. Let me show you kind of the, the scope of the issue. Uh, we all know that we are moving rapidly toward a renewable energy revolution. The U.S. Department of Energy through Granholm now has, has laid out 
a number of ambitious goals for renewable energy. That's coming from the federal government. We know that from the state of California as well. So we also know that from County of Los Angeles. So I'm just bringing it down closer to, to home. There is a Los Angeles sustain, County Sustainability Plan called Our County, you know, or the plan. That plan calls for 10 gigawatts of new solar energy in LA County by 2045. If you do a little bit of quick math, that would mean that LA County is going to have to purchase 30 million new solar panels in the next 22 years. That represents a over $3 billion that will currently go overseas to purchase the panels, right? So we're offering a new sustainable energy opportunity, but we're also offering a new sustainable economic opportunity for our local communities. So why not take that $3 billion and start 13 factories for $65 million in LA County, and then spend the rest of that $30 billion on deploying and purchasing materials to create thousands of jobs and an ongoing industry for middle-class manufacturing, working with an already developed workforce development agency throughout the County of Los Angeles and reclaim the ability to cover our own county and our own cities with our own panels made by our own people. That's the same model that we use for cities, that it's, it's a possibility now for us to start an opportunity. And then also, like right now, we're in conversation with Joe Manchin's office in West Virginia, their economic development for the state officer, I, I totally understood the opportunity to create a factory in West Virginia. We actually are working with a partner that would like to create four or five factories on the East Coast. And the bringing back of solar is just the first step, because then once we do that, we can bring back aluminum extrusion for the frames, we can bring back solar glass, we can bring back ultimately solar cell manufacturing. Are those all of those components also being imported? Absolutely. We've given it all up. Wow. We don't make one solar cell. Can't afford to buy solar glass from the United States. Nobody really makes it. Have to get it from China. Okay. So, you know, it's an opportunity. If we're thinking strategically, our, our model includes the education of local communities and counties to be thinking more like an entrepreneur and to stop the economic leakage wherever we possibly can right. and, then, and then build on that center of gravity by attracting more opportunity and more manufacturing back to our communities. Devin, you know, I don't know if these two things are the same, but when it comes to technology that is intended at reducing climate footprint, one of the things that I think about is the question of whether or not all these new technologies are in fact accessible to everybody across the economic spectrum in the economy. And the first place I think about is electric cars. Okay. I drive an electric car. I have a Chevy Bolt. It's a $40,000 car. And with major subsidy, you end up getting like $1,100 in rebates. 
it's still a $29,000 car. If you want a level two charger in your garage, that's a $2,000 cash out-of-pocket expense. Why is it and why does it seem to you that some of the groundbreaking technology that can reduce our climate footprint seems to be most easily accessible to our wealthiest residents in our communities? Yeah, I think that's a great follow-on question to the other question about the value of the nonprofit. And that is that we've got on all these technologies, you've got tremendous size of sunk cost that needs to be recuperated. And so just like the building retrofit push in 2010 to about 2014, it was known that only high net worth individuals could afford to spend 30 or $40,000 energy upgrading their homes. But the hope was that we would start there, prove the model, and then as things expanded and economies of scale kicked in, that we could reduce cost. We've decided to hit that equation uh, from the opposite direction, and that is to go directly to deploying our technology for the lowest household income families in our communities. And when you think about it, there's an economic advantage to doing that. So not only is it the morally right thing to do, but if you think about it, there's something called the marginal propensity to consume, the MPC. And that is an equation. It's basically a multiplier effect that governments, especially now, uh, have been trying to discover how best to spend a stimulus dollar. How do you get the most productivity in the local economy immediately out of a stimulus spent? So they now know, well, they've known for a long time, they did this even during the Bush administration, that if you send checks, dollars, to certain populations, low income especially, or people out of work, that their marginal propensity to consume those extra dollars will go back into the local economy immediately and locally, right? At a much higher multiplier rate than at the higher household income level. Devin, do we know why that is? Do we it's, know? It's, yes, the, it's, it's a very simple principle, and that is something called essential spending needs are never met at the low household income level. They are constantly working from paycheck to paycheck to spend every penny they make on the things that are essential for living. So for example, if a high household income family puts solar on their home and saves $90 a month or $100 a month, that money almost never hits the local economy. It will go most likely to a multinational bank or a stock market account. It never has to get spent because they don't need extra $90 a month for clothes, food, rent, gasoline, medical supplies, et cetera. But at the low household income level, any extra dollar, any extra increase in DPI tends to get spent immediately and locally. So in fact, not only is it the right thing to do to focus this technology at the low household income level or families who are struggling economically, but it is, in fact, the largest economic lever we can pull for local economic expansion. And the numbers that we've run, for example, it's a very simple math. If you save $90 a month for a household 
And then you deploy that, you know, times 12 times 6,000 households, let's say, for in the city of Pomona and Claremont, if we target the low household income families, that's six and a half million dollars a year that will get redirected back into the local economy away from the utilities that's currently being burned up every month. So that extra bump in DPI at the low household income level is a fantastic economic expansion tool. So not only does it help our families who are struggling and to give them a better quality of life, which helps all of us, but it actually stimulates the economy to the tune of six and a half million dollars a year for the next 25 years once those solar panels are installed. Love it. Devin, it has been a real education. It has been a real pleasure and a joy. And I just want to take this quick opportunity to thank you for being with us today to share your vision and your accomplishments on the Jedcast. Before I let you go, Devin, can you let everybody know where can they find Chirp Solar Works and locally grown power? Oh, great. Go to cherplgp.org and you'll see a whole lot of wonderful information. Uh, don't forget to visit our YouTube channel. You'll see dozens of very, very fun videos, even a drone tour of the factory and a tour of the artwork in the factory, because we've covered the entire inside of the factory with local artwork to enhance the working atmosphere inside the, that new factory. Love it, buddy. It's everybody listening. Make sure you check out Chirp Solar Works and Locally Grown Power. And my friend, Devin Hartman, a real pleasure to have you on the Jedcast with us today. Thanks Thank again, you friend. all so much for this opportunity. Thanks, Jared. All right, my friend. Thanks, Audrey. Yeah. Hey, everybody. Thanks a lot for listening to that fantastic interview with Devin Hartman. You know, so many different things about this interview stand out. But for me, what, what I just can't believe is that this man took technology that could have been leveraged for big, big dollars. If you are a venture capitalist, if you're private equity, you're looking for these guys. And the fact that he felt like climate change was such a problem that he wasn't going to go fish it out and farm it out to, to, to investors who were going to flip it overseas. He wants to do it locally here with nonprofits to make sure that everyone can afford these panels. I had to stop myself in the middle of the interview. Usually I just ask the questions, but I couldn't believe, do you know how much money they're turning down to do this? I mean, and they're doing this for all the right reasons. Love to hear your thoughts on this interview, Audrey. Yeah. I mean, Jed, when we opened this session, you talked about, you wanted to find out from Devin about all boats rising and having listened to his responses to our questions, it's clear to me that, you know, the response that Devin had is real to a, a real racial, racial reckoning and moment in our society when we've got to decide who are we and how are we going to deal with the inequities that exist and continue to worsen. And to have someone like him talk about targeting these neighborhoods because they are the marginalized neighborhoods, because they are the ones that suffer most from climate change reminds me of a principle John Powell talks about from the Othering and Belonging Institute. It's called targeted universalism. And it means that if I understand what's causing the inequities for a particular population and I devise solutions that support that population, 
it's gonna help everybody. It's gonna pay, pay dividends to all of us. And right. what he described for us is just a perfect example of that. You know, I really like during the interview, your callback to our season one episode interview with Denise Diaz. I mean, Denise represents Southgate, is born and raised in Southgate. And she brought up the fact that if you live in the zip code 90280, your life expectancy is 10 years less. And it's 10 years less because of the logistics and the freeways and the transportation corridors that exist right next to people's homes in Southgate. Yeah. And Devin talked directly about that. You know, communities of color and disadvantaged communities, they bear the brunt of all of our economic growth and activity. And that's because they don't stick up for themselves because they don't have access to that kind of political power. And the fact that, that he recognizes that and is devising a plan to address that, I think is really, is really important. So really enjoy that interview. To everybody listening at home or commuting on the way to work, thank you for joining us. Hope you enjoyed this talk with CEO of Chirp Solar Works, Devin Hartman, and we will see you next time on the Jetcast. <laughs>